It was the event that changed the world, the world of long-distance endurance racing. I'm talking about the first Australian ultramarathon, which was run in Australia. It started in a mall in the Westfield Mall in Sydney, and it went all the way down to the Westfield Mall in Melbourne. But it was no walk in the mall, because this was a 545-mile-long endurance race. It was the first of its kind. And the runners were expected to take maybe six, seven days to run this race. In 1983, this was the first time it was being run, 150 world-class runners converged on Sydney to run this race. On the day of the race, a man called Cliff Young showed up at the starting desk, and he said, I want to register. They said, do you want to register for this race? He said, yes. Now, Cliff Young was 61 years old, 61 years old. He was a potato farmer, a sheep herder. He had never run a marathon before. So they said, are you sure you want to run? He said, yes. Have you trained for a marathon? He's like, no, but I have, I worked all my life on a huge farm. We have 2,000 acres. We were poor. We didn't have, you know, tractors and equipment. So I've spent two, three days rounding up cattle on my farm, chasing them down. They said, okay. And they said, what are you wearing? He was wearing his overalls, a baseball hat, and he was wearing galoshes, rainbows. They said, are you going to run in that? He's like, yeah, it might rain. So they couldn't stop him. (laughs) So they couldn't stop him. So they said, okay, you know what? We'll give you, you, you can run the race. So off goes the starting gun. And the spectators started snickering at Cliff because all the professional athletes in their equip- nice equipment and nice shoes, they were trained, you know, sculpted bodies just took off. They just took off. And Cliff was left at the starting line. And then he started to run. And then the snickers turned to laughter because he did not run like everybody else. He had an odd shuffle, and it became known as the young shuffle. He shuffled forward ungainly, slowly, and he was soon left behind as everyone else took off. And everyone knew to run a marathon, an ultra-marathon, which lasted seven days, there was a strategy to it. You ran 18 hours, and then when midnight came, you would rest for six hours, and then you would wake up, and you would run 18 hours, and you would rest for another you know, six hours and so on until you finished the race. But no one told Cliff Young. He didn't, he didn't read the Runner's World magazine. He didn't follow the world's best runners on Twitter. There was no Twitter back then. So what did he do? He just shuffled along slowly but surely. As the other runners slept, the professional runners, he kept running through the night. He kept shuffling. He kept moving. Night after night. Soon all of Australia, the news media were following the story, and people were calling and saying, this crazy old man is going to die. Stop him. And he kept going. Five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later, Cliff Young came shuffling across the finish line in Melbourne, winning the first ultramarathon. The nearest professional runner was 10 hours behind him. And he was happy to win, but he was stunned to find out there was also a prize, a $10,000 prize, which was a lot of money back in the day. 
And he was a very generous man, and he promptly shared the prize money with the next five runners who finished the race. Cliff Young won this race because he had a special quality that we are going to focus on today. He knew how to run with endurance. So good morning. Um, it is a privilege this morning to share a message from a passage of Scripture, which has you know, certainly been an encouragement to me over time, uh, a message about running with endurance. I want to thank Pastor Steve for giving me the opportunity to teach today. Um, I'm going to learn what it feels like to be a substitute teacher, but with the actual teacher in the classroom, so no, no pressure on me. I wasn't supposed to do this today. I was supposed to do it when he was far away, but it just worked out. Um, <laughs> and I, some, I feel somewhat bad for Pastor Steve and for Mario because I'm going to talk about endurance, and they've had to endure this message three times. We, I, I, did this, I did this in India as well. Um, so last year, as we were planning for our missions trip to India, we asked Pastor Thieve over in Delhi, you know, what, what, what do you want us to share, anything particular to share with your church? And he said, you know what, my church is uh, mostly very young people in their 20s, early 30s. Delhi is a big city. Everyone is always in a hurry. We're always out of time. We're rushing from place to place. There are so many distractions in life that my young people face. Uh, can you talk about focusing on God? And I started working on this message. And I told him, you know what, life is the same no matter what. I grew up in Delhi, so I know I live now in the Bay Area. Life is busy no matter what. There are many distractions. The pace of life here is fast. It gets tiring. And life is not easy no matter where you live. And you, you may have heard these idioms. People call life a roller coaster. They call it a rat race, right? You may win the race, but you'll always remain a rat. Um, <laughs> And the Apostle Paul used several metaphors to describe the Christian life. Now, Paul was um, a Roman citizen, but he was also very familiar with Greek culture. He had traveled widely, so he knew how to communicate to a variety of people. For example, when he writes to the church in Corinth, and Corinth was in Greece, he writes about running, he writes about boxing, he writes about fighting, because Corinth was the site of the Isthmian Games, and there's a picture up there of the Isthmian Games, um, which featured you know, races, foot races, um, boxing matches, wrestling, and so on. And this morning, we're going to focus on one of these metaphors for, for the Christian life, uh, which is running the race. And our scripture, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be in the first three verses this morning. Um, let me give you some background as you get there before we get to this text. Um, someone said that the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews by, by a Hebrew telling the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews. And the context is that many of the young Jewish Hebrew believers were, uh, because of the persecution, were slipping back into you know, uh, Jewish rites and rituals. They were getting disheartened. They were questioning their newfound faith. They were tempted to give up. And one of the main themes in the book of Hebrews, one of the main four or five themes, is, exhort, is exhortation telling these persecuted believers to not give up, to persevere, and to endure. So 12 chapters into this letter, we come to our text. Let me read the text for us this morning. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. And it says, 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you for this morning, for the wonderful time of worship, for your word. Your word is uh, powerful. It is eternal. I pray that it will speak words of encouragement to us, just as just it did back in the day when this letter was written to the Hebrews. I pray that I would be faithful to the text and you would give me the right words to speak. And I pray that we would listen with our ears and hearts and be open to your word. Speak to us, Lord, and help us help us to change us. And I pray that all that is said here today will glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us are in a race from here to eternity. We are all racing by default to death and destruction until God sets his love on us. We turn in, in repentance 180 degrees and our race of faith begins. God puts us in the starting blocks to start his race. Off goes the starting gun. And this is when the race of faith we are going to read about today in Hebrews 12 begins. Now, every race, every marathon has rules. Um, And I'm going to be quickly talking about some rules of our Christian faith, rules of the Christian faith. There are eight rules here, and you should have them in your outline as well. Um, The first rule, everyone must run. We who are saved are called to participate in this race of faith. God calls you and me to run this race. If you look at verse 1, he does not say, some of you run, some of you sit in the stands, most of you run. He says, let us run, let us run. The Christian life is not a spectator sport where we watch others run while we sit comfortably in the stand, stands. Um, I, have seen, I have seen three types of runners in the church. There are runners who would be classified as pretenders. They show up to the church once in a while, but when they leave the doors of the church, they go back to running the opposite direction. There are passive professors. They profess with their lips. Uh, they have changed directions uh, genuinely. They're going in the right race. They're going in the right direction. But they don't think that they need to do much else. They are coasting. They are meandering. They are crawling towards the finish and waiting for the finish to come to them. And finally, there are the pursuers. And hopefully this is all of us. These are the ones who, have been, who truly run. They have been pursued by God, and now they pursue God. So the writer is saying, professors, stop being spectators. Stop coasting. Stop meandering. Get in the race and run towards Jesus. To the true pursuers, he's saying, pursue God as if he is the most important thing in the universe. Run like you want to win it. So that's rule number one. Everyone must run. Number two, everyone's race is unique. My race and your race is not the same. The person next to you does not have the same race. Our starting point of our race, the course of our race, The milestones, the people we run with, the people watching us, the challenges we face are all unique. Um, Last couple of weeks, Ken talked about setting up memorial stones along the way. Those are unique to us as well as we look at God's faithfulness. 
So God has placed you in a city, a church, a workplace, a home, a neighborhood. No other person has the same areas, influences you do. So God has set before you a unique race for you to run, and only you can run it. So that's number two. Number three, we all run the race together. While we do not run the same course, we all run together. God in his sovereign plan has given you a unique role in his church. We are on the same team, so run together. Help each other run the race and exhort one another daily, as Hebrews 3.13 reminds us. And the text that Joe read this morning said the same thing. Exhort one another, encourage one another. So we all run this race together. Number four, we do not race against each other. One way the race of faith is different from a marathon is it is not a competition. The prize is in finishing and becoming more like Jesus and getting to the end and finishing whatever mission God has given you, not in beating each other. So stay in your lane and run the race God has given you. Number four, the race requires training. You cannot become a marathon runner without training, without discipline, without self-control. You can't just show up on the start of the race and say, okay, I'm going to run. Right? Even Cliff Young, he did practice. He just practiced differently. First uh, Corinthians 9.26 talks about this. It says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But he says, I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Um, a few weeks ago, Constance was asking me what I'm going to be teaching about today. So I told her, and she told me of a time, and I'm saying this with her permission, long time ago, she was training for the marathon, the San Francisco Marathon. And she was with a group of people. They were doing all this training. And San Francisco has a lot of hills. She missed the day, the training, where they taught them how to run up and down the hills. And one thing led to another, and she was not able to finish that race, all because she missed that one day of training. So miss the training, and you're not going to be able to run the way that you're meant to run. So that's number five. Number six, everyone who finishes gets a prize. This is the good news. Everyone who finishes gets a prize. Uh, winners of the Corinthian games, they used to receive a, a, a crown, a wreath made up of leaves and pine cones. It would literally turn to dust after a few months, and which is why Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He says... Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. And further, everyone that runs and gets to the finish line gets an award, gets a prize. We are all promised a reward. Um, my wife and I, when, when my son finished kindergarten, we were amused. We didn't go to school here growing up, so we were amused where everybody in kindergarten got a prize. Everybody got a prize. We grew up you know, in a culture where the top three got a prize, the rest were losers. But now we want to affirm everybody and make everyone feel good, which I get it. But, and we are promised, all of us are promised a prize for finishing the race. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, famous verses, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord... The righteous judge will award to me, Paul, on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved have loved is appearing, all who have loved is appearing. 
So your prize is there, it's imperishable, and all of us who finish faithfully will get it. Number seven, the race is not easy. Now, I don't need to even explain this one. You know it. If you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you know it. Um, the, the Greek word used here for the word race is the word agon. And if it seems familiar, the word agon in the Greek literally is where we get our English word agony from. Agony. So what he's saying here is run with endurance the agony set before us. And if the Christian life were easy, he would say run with energy, run with speed. Instead, he says run with endurance. Why? Because he knows that the race of faith is not easy. There is going to be discomfort. A couple of chapters back in um, Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 32, he refers to their struggle. And he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better position and an abiding one. So they suffered, they were publicly exposed to reproach, to affliction, they were in prison, and their property was plundered because of their faith. They had to endure hardships. And in Hebrews chapter 11, if you've read this, you're familiar with this. Hebrews chapter 11 lists all of these faithful finishers who did great things by faith. And in verses 1 to 34, you know, it builds up this crescendo of faith. By faith, Abraham did this, Abel did this. No, you know, it just goes on. And it kind of builds up to this crescendo in verse 32 where it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Listen to this. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some, some were tortured, refused to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn into. They were killed by the sword. And it goes on. There is no promise of a healthy, wealthy, and happy life, as you can see in this letter and elsewhere. Last night, I was, as I was reading this text for the one last time, I was making changes on my computer. My son was sitting behind me. I didn't know he was watching. And then he was like, Dad, there is no happy, wealthy, happy life? I was like, well, we're not guaranteed it. There are Christians all over the world who are persecuted, and we went on to talk about it. So if your life is not easy, and that's because that is the nature of the race, if you run it as a true pursuer of God. So that's number seven. Number eight, run. The race requires endurance. You've got to run with endurance. So if the race is not going to be easy, if it's going to be long, it requires endurance. And endurance is used, if you notice, three times in these verses. Once as a command and twice when describing how Jesus ran the race, how he endured. 
And it is the main command of these verses, run with endurance. And the definition of endurance uh, in the dictionary is as follows. The ability to withstand hardship or or adversity, especially the ability to sustain a prolonged stressful effort or activity. The race of faith is a prolonged sustained effort. It is not a sprint. It is not a 100-meter race. It is not even a 10,000-meter race in a beautiful stadium. It is a cross-country race, and I picture it as a cross-country race and combined with an obstacle course where things are coming at you as you go down this course. Patience, stamina, pacing is more important than speed. And I told you about Cliff Young. Cliff Young was victorious because one thing set him apart. He had endurance. He didn't look the part. He was dressed poorly. He was poor. Uh, He didn't have speed. He didn't have all the resources. His, you know, 89-year-old mom was his coach. But he had, he had one thing. He just kept running. And victory in the Christian life comes through endurance, just like Cliff Young. Now, it may be a slow shuffle forward like Cliff Young. You know, different seasons of our life, our speed goes up and down. But the important lesson, the important lesson is that like Cliff Young, Cliff, Young, Cliff Young, we always need to keep moving forward. So keep moving forward. So that's number eight. The, the race requires endurance. So if the key is to run with endurance, the question is, how do we run with endurance? And this morning, I want to give you four practical strat- strategies from this text for running with endurance. Let's look at these. The first strategy, he says um, in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The first strategy is that we are asked to look to the faithful finishers, all those who have finished the race of faith before us. Who are they? Who is the cloud of witnesses? It is everyone mentioned in chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, the giants of the faith. There are known ones and unknown ones in there. Now, they're not, witnessing to, they're not witnessing us. They are not sitting up there looking down on us running this race. There is no evidence they can do that or they do that. What it means is that they, their lives and how they faithfully ran are witnesses to us. They are witnesses to us how we are to run our race. And I read this somewhere. Noah is telling every drunk you can stop. Abraham reminds every liar, you can tell the truth. Samsung acknowledges that God's power can enable you to win over your passion. Rahab informs you, you can break the chains of promiscuity. Moses jogs your memory that with God's help, you can control anger. Gideon testifies, you can face your fears. And David beckons that you can overcome the worst thing, things a human being can do. So look to those who have finished the race. And not just in the Bible. All of church history is full of um, examples of those who have run the race successfully. We, we, this, this, this year we are talking about the Reformers and Martin Luther, uh, you know, many missionaries of the past, uh, maybe even people around you, people that you personally know who have finished faithfully, who have endured. And, and the Bible is asking us to remember them and learn how to run faithfully from their strong finish. So that's strategy number one. 
look to the faithful finishers. Make sense? Number two, strategy number two, it says, um, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let's, this number two is, let's get rid of the sin. Lay aside sin. We'll get to the weight in a few minutes, but let's talk about the sin which clings so closely. And this is referring to just obvious, outright, besetting sin. Things that we know are wrong, but we are simply unwilling to let go of them. And this is the category of non-arguable things that we must lay down. Outright sin entangles our feet. So when we run, it's going to trip you up. It's going to trip us down. Um, sometimes I go out for a walk with my kids. We go to the park. And my daughter, who is you know, about 35 pounds, will get on my back. And they, they say, let's run, Daddy. Let's run. So we start running with her on my back. And I'm fine to start with. But within five minutes... I feel like I'm going to collapse. And I have to tell her, get off my back. We are not going to get to where we need to go, right? It would be ridiculous for me to show up to a marathon with my kid on my back. But sin is the same way. It's not merely a lightweight. It's not like carrying your phone and your keys in your pocket and running. It is a huge hindrance to running your race. You will not be able to run, let alone run with endurance. So number, number two here, you got to lay the sin aside. Lay, lay your sin aside. So that's number two. Strategy number three. Look to Jesus. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Where your eyes are matters when you are going somewhere. Apparently, 21% of all teenage drivers who have died in car accidents were messing with their phones when they were driving. They had their eyes fixed on their phones, instead of looking at where they needed to go. And I don't know about your translation, but some translations use the term, instead of looking, fixing your eyes on Jesus, fixing your eyes. And I like, I like that translation because it implies there are many things we can be looking at. There are many distractions coming our way, many things I could be looking at as we run. But we are to fix our eyes not on others, like we talked about, not on ourselves, not on our successes, not on our past failures. Not to navel gaze at our weaknesses when we run. But to fix our eyes on Jesus. And why should we fix our eyes on Jesus? He gives us two reasons in this text to fix our eyes on Jesus. Two reasons. Number one reason to fix your eyes on Jesus. He says... Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus Christ is the author or founder, which means originator. Without him, you would not be running this race. No Christian's business card says, you know, Sam Rajkumar, founder and CEO of my life. Because I am not the founder of my life, of my race. He started your race. 
And then it says he's also the finisher or the perfecter of your race who helps us get to the finish line. So he fire, he puts us in the starting blocks, he fires the starting gun, and he meets us at the end of the race. He's there to meet us. Philippians 6.1 says, uh, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion. And he, just, he doesn't just show up at the beginning of the race and start you off and then you know, kind of run to the end of the finish line and meet you there and cheer you there. He's there with us as we run the race step by step. And Ken talked about it a lot last couple of weeks. He's there with you during the race with its ups and downs, with all the challenges. At the 1992 Barcelona Olympic Games, one of the runners in the 400-meter race was a British athlete named Derek Redmond. He had trained for years to to compete in the Olympics. In the previous Olympics, he had a hamstring injury, so he had to last-minute bow out of the race but he made it to the finish line in, in to, he made it to the starting line sorry in the 1992 olympics and we're going to watch a short video about his race
Derek didn't win the medal, but he finished his race. And Derek's father came to his son's side when he fell. And we don't run the course alone. So I said, you know, God starts our race. He fin- he's there to, f- to receive us at the end, but he's there with us throughout the race. And like Derek's father, when we fall, our Heavenly Father himself is there to help us up towards the finish line. Focus on Jesus, the one who will bring your race to completion. So that's the first reason. Right? We are talking about looking to Jesus as the third strategy. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus because he's the author, the founder, the one who carries us through the race. The second reason we are to focus on Jesus is that he's an example of how to run the race. He's not just with us, you know, but he's also an example to us how to run the race. We are asked to imitate him. And we know he had endurance. Jesus has endurance. If you look at verses 2 and 3, it says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus have endurance? He focused on the joy that was set before him. He did not focus on the pain. He did not focus on the shame of the cross. He did not focus on the hostility of people around him. Instead, he focused on the joy that was set before him and the end goal. Jesus looked beyond the temporary and the distractions and the problems of his life to the eternal purpose of why he came to do what he came to do. What was this joy set before him? Uh, Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, has this to say about the joy. He says this, The joy set before Jesus was principally the joy of saving you and me. It was this joy that made Christ strong to endure in the day of his sorrow, and joy must also make you strong to endure to the end. He ran with a heavy cross on his back, and yet he ran faster than you or I have ever run, because he had more joy than we have. So, my brethren, let us live in the joy of heaven. Let us live in the joy of ultimate victory, and this will enable us to bear all the toils and trials of our present life. And going back to the story of Cliff Young, remember he won the marathon, the first ultra-marathon, by not sleeping. And he set an example. In 1984, the next year, 1984, he ran the race again. And this time, Cliff Young injured himself, so he had to bow out of the race. But guess what happened? Eight other runners beat his record. Eight other runners beat his record. They ran nonstop this time without sleeping. And they said, if Cliff Young could do it last year and he beat us, I can do it. It was all in their minds. They looked to Cliff Young and how he ran for five days without sleep. They followed his example and they beat his record. So in our race, we run, like I said, not fixed on ourselves, but on Jesus. So focus on the end goal and focus on Jesus, the author and finisher and completer, perfecter of your race. So that's number three. Number four. The fourth one here is, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. Let's talk about the weight. Lay aside the weight. You've got to drop the weights to run with endurance. You've got to travel light. And I saved this one for the end because I wanted to end with some practical implications, something that you can think about. Because we don't, we don't talk about weights in our lives as much as we talk about sin, which is very important as we talked about. 
what is this weight? Um, Kent Hughes, he has an excellent definition. He says this about the weight. A hindrance or weight is something otherwise good that weighs you down spiritually. It could be a friendship. It could be an association, an event, a place, a habit, a pleasure, an entertainment, an honor. But if this otherwise good thing drags you down, you must strip it away. You must strip it away. So if extra weight made out of good things sounds harmless, you know, listen to this. Um, the NTSB has found that 50% of all people who are evacuating a plane that has crashed start to pick up their belongings, their handbags, and their backpacks. And now with, with you know, the widespread spread of cell phones, this is getting captured and put on social media. And last year... People were mad because a particular plane crashed in the Dubai airport, and all these people started taking videos of people you know, grabbing their bags. The plane is burning, and they are just not listening to the flight attendants. In response to this, uh, Tim Charles, he's a pastor and blogger, he says this, this about this phenomenon. It hardly needs to be said that grabbing your suitcase during an evacuation is a bad idea. It may even be a deadly idea. To take your suitcase is bad for you and everyone around you. A suitcase is a perfectly good thing that might just kill you in, a, in an emergency evacuation. It is a perfectly good thing, but it isn't good enough to risk your life for. And our lives are full of good things that may be just slowing us down, that may hinder us from matters that are far more important matters of eternal consequence. If you are on a plane that is broken and burning, the best thing you can do is lay aside every weight and every hindrance so you can focus on just getting out into safety. And in a world that is broken and burning, it is even more important to lay aside every possible hindrance and weight to do it for the good of your soul and to good and for the good of those around you. So it might sound, the weights and the hindrance might sound like good things, but there is a consequence to them as well. And this is the harder problem to solve in my mind, because if these are good things, it is hard to identify a weight as a weight. What is a weight for me may not be a weight for you. What is a weight for you may not be a weight for me, right? And since they're all good things or neutral things by themselves, weights are far harder to deal with. And in the remaining time, I wanted to look at a few examples here. And let's put this to the test. Um, I, I listed a few things here that can become weights. And this is not a comprehensive list. Like I said, what is a weight for you may not be a weight for you. So I'm doing a bit of confessing here. <laughs> and the question I want you to ask yourself, and it's at the bottom of your out outline here, is... To ask yourself, is it a weight or is it a wing? Is it a wing or a weight? And what that means is, does it help you move forward? Does it lift you up and help you in your race? Or does it slow you down and drag, drag you down? That is the question to ask. The first thing I want to talk about is entertainment. Let's talk about entertainment. Entertainment is a good thing. Um, recently, the CEO of Netflix, um, Reed Hastings, on, a, on an analyst conference call, he was asked, you know, what is your biggest competition? What is your biggest competition? He did not say YouTube. He did not say Amazon or traditional TV. You know what he said? He said, um, 
You know, think about it. When you watch a show on Netflix, you get addicted to it. You stay up at night. He said, we're competing with sleep on the margin. It's a very large pool of time. Sleep is our greatest enemy. Sleep is our enemy. And he tweeted this on, on Twitter. Netflix is coming for your sleep. <laughs> and I found it ironic. You know, we need entertainment to help us rest. But now we need to give up our rest in order to be entertained. Isn't that ironic? Um, Tim Chalice, in a, in a blog post in, Feb, in February, said this about entertainment. He wrote a post about how much entertainment is too much. He says, we must be the most entertained generation in all of human history. We take entertainment as our inalienable right. If you work hard during the day, we assume we have earned a few hours of amusement at night. Actually, we can't even make it through the day without us at least a few distractions, a couple of websites in the morning, some quick YouTube videos at lunch, sports radio on the way home, and so on and so forth. The evening hours are for Netflix. The choices are endless, and our commitment to entertainment near total. He says, it is good for us to consider the place of entertainment in the Christian life. How much is enough? How much is too much? And this is a constant topic in my household as well. Um, it is clear that we need times of rest and entertainment in order to thrive. Life is difficult. We need opportunities to relax, to unwind, and to recharge. We will harm our bodies, minds, and souls if we only ever work. For that reason, the Bible doesn't disparage entertainment. It doesn't look with disapproval on downtime. It doesn't ridicule hours in a day or weeks in a year that are purposefully committed to something other than life's day-to-day responsibilities. Jesus himself freely relaxed with friends. Yet, the Bible also reminds us that we are accountable before God for every minute and every hour. We must redeem the short time given to us. We have responsibilities we must fulfill and duties we must perform. Our purpose in life is not entertainment. God's mandate to Adam called for dominion, not distraction. Jesus' commission to his followers called out, called for a full-out commitment. We were made to work and not play. We don't work so we can rest, but rest so we can work. While we may take a rest from work, we must never take a rest from holiness. So the question here is, is entertainment in your life, in my life, a weight? Or is it a wing? Does it help you run? The second example I put down here, and this is, this is as you will hear in a second, something that my household deals with. Uh, possessions. Possessions can become weights. They are physical weights. Um, collecting and managing possessions can be a big weight. Um, I came to America with two suitcases to go to graduate school. That's it. I sold my car, all my possessions, packed my bags, and moved here with two suitcases. Now, after 15 years and having been married and two kids, we have all this stuff that I have no idea what it is, right? And last year, we moved homes, and someone at work you know, recommended this moving company, so they moved us. And I was told, you know, this moving company, the guys don't speak any English. They speak you know, Mandarin. I don't speak Mandarin. So we kind of communicated, just gestured, and it worked out. The only three words this guy said to me at the end of the day in English was, too much stuff. <laughs> too much stuff. So 
you know, our household, Rajkumar household, is working hard at being or getting organized, getting rid of all this stuff because it's managing us, and we are like, no, we just got to stop. So possessions can be a weight. Uh, you know, is your stuff or your toys or your possessions a wing or a weight? Ask yourself that. Does it help you run? Uh, number three is um, technology. You know, technology is great. Um, I work in technology. It has certainly changed our lives in our generation. But technology use, including social media use, can be a huge weight. can be a huge weight. And the use of technology in my household is probably one of the most contentious topics, concerning topics, because we are parents of young children, and we need to protect them. And, you know, I personally am often called a slave to technology by people in my own home. Uh, my son, you know, my son, over a year ago, he one day looked at me and said, Dad, I, you know, devices, they are your idols. And one time he asked me, do, do you love Jesus more or do you love your phone more? And my wife will sometimes say, you know, you are married to your devices, like you're constantly on them. And this morning as we were driving to church, if you're driving to church, I'm trying to get here early, you know, I'm nervous, and I can't feel my phone in my pocket. I had that moment of anxiety, you know, that separation anxiety. <laughs> and it's hopefully not just me. And my wife turned, and she looked in her bag. We're almost at the church. She doesn't have her phone. We don't know where our phones are at. And I'm like, okay, fine. You know, we are surviving. <laughs> uh, but phones are making us anxious, right? And... Um, this guy called Tony Reinke, he just came out with a brand new book titled 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And I've been, I'm starting to study a little bit about technology and how it's changing us. And I was telling the men at the men's breakfast, I'm going to talk about it at some point. And I just started on this book. It's an excellent book. And I think we have a couple of minutes to watch this short video, and then I'll talk a little bit about his book.
So it's a fun, fun little video, but he talks about in his book, you know, all these different ways uh, technology and our phones are changing us. And he also talks about what the Bible has to say about those 12 things and what it means to live the undistracted life that Paul talks about. Um, I just wanted to read out, we don't have much time, but I'll just read out a few of these things he talks about. <clears throat> uh, he says, we get addicted to distraction. Our phones are a candy bowl of sugar hits whenever we want them, and it's impossible to be offline for any amount of time without the feeling, feeling anxiety of withdrawal like I was feeling this morning. Uh, he talks about craving immediate approval. Smartphones put us in instant contact with friends, family, and strangers. We can see and be seen right now. We publish a picture and refresh our feeds to see who is watching and approving, but this craving for human approval kills faith. Yet we find it so hard to put our phones away. We fear one another. We want admiration from one another. So we cultivate an inordinate desire for human approval through our social media platforms. We are performers on a stage of social media, carefully crafting our appearance before an audience, seeking to impress and to rouse applause. We now have an audience-oriented self of, sense of self. And anyone who's been on Facebook understands this. You're constantly thinking about communicating to an audience, and this can be very damaging. He says, uh, we become what we like. We become most like what we love, and whatever we most love is offered to us on our phones. Whatever we focus our attention on is the thing we are becoming. Another one he says is, we become harsh to one another. Gossip has been a favorite pastime of sinners, envious of one another. But now we can text, snap rumors, or incriminating photos on a crystal screen, slinging dirt. So, slinging dirt seems so easy, so, so hygienic, so sanitary. And the last one he talks about, he says, we lose our place in time. Our attention span is shattered into nine-second bursts as we struggle to manage the waterfall of texts, snaps, photos, breaking news prompts, and new and weird and crazy and scandalous things. Conditioned to think that what is most important is what's happening online right now, we can concentrate on nothing. Our digital ADD makes us lose our sense in the world. Digital ADD. It's a great book. I just started reading it, and like I said, it also talks about what the Bible says about each of these areas and how to live an undistracted life. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask, is technology, social media, is your phone a wing or a weight in your life? More importantly, are you adding weight to other people's lives with what you do with these, with these uh, tools and uh, media platforms? Does it help you run, or does it help others run? Um, the last thing I wanted to quickly cover here is a fourth one. And at the men's breakfast, I talked about, you know, as men, our careers and our jobs are being a weight in our lives. And one of the most common words that I hear and you probably hear when you talk to someone and ask them how they're doing, they say, I'm okay, I'm busy. Busyness is uh, almost a status symbol. It is a badge of honor, but you know, busyness is not a spiritual gift. And business can business and overscheduling can become a weight in our lives, and I know this well. I, I discovered Stephen J. Lawson's book uh, "In It to Win It" just last weekend. I wish I had known it earlier; I wouldn't have done all this work. But in it, he talks about how work and career and even busyness can become a weight in our lives. 
But then he talks about another area of busyness, which I found a little bit surprising initially, and but it made sense, and I wanted to share it with you. He talks about an area of work, a work which can be a weight with us with not even realizing it. And Lawson says this, and I quote, We carry excess baggage, and our ministry for Christ becomes all-consuming. If it pushes out our time alone with God, our ministry becomes a hindrance to what is the best. Our work for God must never take us away from our worship of God. Do not get me wrong. Ministry is important. As a pastor, I am committed to ministry. Every believer must serve in God's kingdom, but this must never crowd out our personal worship of God. The most important thing about us is our knowledge of Christ. John 17, 3. We must grow constantly to know him and love him in a deeper, fuller, richer way. Worship first, work second. He says, sometimes we can get so busy serving Christ, we neglect our heart devotion to him. This is the good competing with the best. And he says, there are two ladies that can teach us a lot about this lesson. They are Mary and Martha. In Luke 10, one day Jesus came to their home and Martha began serving. Guess what Mary did? She just sat there at Jesus' feet. She spent time alone there, drinking in his words. Martha was not pleased to serve solo. She got hot and bothered. She complained to Jesus. Jesus gently rebuked her by saying, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but Mary has chosen the good part. In other words, don't just do something, just sit there. Do not sacrifice your personal worship on the altar of ministry. Serving Christ is good, but worshiping Christ is the best. And then he says this, God does not want a performance. He wants a relationship. Does ministry madness ever crowd out your heart relationship with Christ? If so, it's a hindrance, a weight in running the race. Choose to worship him first and foremost, then serve him. And these are just four examples I gave you uh, this morning. And you know, only you can identify your weight. I mean, these are things that I sort of identified for myself. It's like being at the airport and you're waiting, your bags are going around. The, the carousel. Only you know your bags. No one else knows them. So you have to identify your weights. And um, Lawson gives a few questions. He says, ask these questions to yourself to identify your weight, weights and to distinguish between what is good, because all these things are good, and what is best. Is it profitable for winning? If not, strip it off. Will it bring me into bondage? If yes, strip it off. Will it cause others to stumble? If yes, strip it off. Will it weaken my faith? Will it keep others from entering the race? And finally, the question we should always be asking, will it glorify God? And of of all these four strategies that we talked about today, looking at the faithful finishers, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher, laying aside sin, uh, you know, this one is, is practical. So this week I want you to think about you know, what is weighing you down in your race? You know, what is your bag? Like, what is your baggage? And in closing, I wanted to end with one more story here. Um, you may have heard the story of a runner from Tanzania called John Stephen Akwari. He was a marathon runner. He ran in the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City. John Stephen Aquari fell during the race. He gets injured badly, and he dislocates his knee. But he gets up and keeps running. And he's bandaged up. He's bleeding. 
All the other runners have finished the race. The medal ceremony is over. Darkness is following. Half the spectators leave. And then the reporters start following this solitary guy coming into the stadium. And he slowly and in agony goes through the final 400 meters and finishes the race. A reporter asked him, why did you keep running when everybody else finished the race? There was no chance to win a prize. Everyone had gone home. He said this, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to Mexico City to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. God, the author of your race and my race, did not put you in the starting block to only start your race. He set you off so you could finish your race. And the attitude of this athlete ought to be my attitude, ought to be our attitude. It does not matter where we start, how we start, where we fall. It just matters that we get up and we run with endurance until we finish the race. So brothers and sisters, this morning I wanted to share with you and encourage you Cast off the weight, cast off the sin, throw off the weights, run with endurance, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your race. Thank you. And Steve is going to come up and pray. Amen. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Let me close in a word of prayer and I'll finish with the song. Father, we thank you for the message that we heard this morning on running this race with endurance. And Lord, we pray that you would um, allow us to take home with us the words that we heard and, and more importantly, your word as it speaks to our own hearts. And Father, help us to continue to strip aside every sin, every weight, so that we could run this Christian life in a way that's honoring to you, glorifying to you. I pray for anybody who is here this morning who is yet to enter this race Lord, I pray that they would understand that this race is open to all who desire to come to Christ and, and to turn from their sin. And, Father, I pray that you would um, show them that very truth, that, Lord, with a simple uh, heartfelt prayer, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, acknowledging your sin before a holy God. And crying out to the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, to save you, to put you in the race. He'll answer that prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. And he'll transform your life. And you'll find yourself going in a, a new direction, in a new race. A race that runs toward him, not away from him. And so, Father, we, we pray for any who are here uh, that they may cry out to you this morning. And as believers, as we leave this place and go out into this world that is constantly competing for our time and our attention, Father, I pray that we would be diligent to set aside that time in holiness with you each each day, that we wouldn't be busy with our careers or our ministries or anything else um, that would take us away from our personal time with you. And so, Father, we just uh, thank you for Sam's willingness to share this morning, and we're just blessed uh, to be able to he be here and hear this this message. We we pray that you would just uh, dismiss us with your blessing after this song. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.